0: welcome to the edges of lean i'm bella engelbach and in this podcast we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking unusual places where lean thinking is practiced we meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles so come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean episode 58, Continuous Improvement and Lookism, with Dr. Katherine McIver. What does a PhD candidate look like? What does a Lean Six Sigma expert look like? How about a CEO? My guest, Katherine McIver, wanted to know why and how our looks impact our opportunities, so she changed the topic of her PhD dissertation. She's here to share her research. Dr. Katherine McIver is a Lean Six Sigma master black belt, and she earned her doctorate from the University of Maryland. Prior to shifting into operations management, she focused on Lean Six Sigma program inception and development, where she strongly emphasized the employee's role in program sustainability and success. When she isn't designing lean programs, McIver teaches for the University of Colorado Denver Business School and she spoils both of her basset hounds rotten. Catherine McIver, welcome to The Ages of Lean.
1: Thank you so much, Bella. I'm really glad to be here. I'm very excited about the, the work that you're doing with this podcast. Well, thank you. And I'm very
0: excited and interested about the work that you're doing. And I thought it would be such an interesting thing for our listeners to hear what it is that you're doing and, and to think about what it means to them and their work. So tell us about Dr. Catherine McIver, what was your path and what are you doing now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my I was a very hardcore, all-in process improvement, continuous improvement professional early on. I found that I loved Lean and Six Sigma in my mid-20s. I earned the certifications all the way up through Master Black Belt, and I was very excited to do program development and to help build programs for new organizations. As part of that, I went to business school. I got an MBA and decided that I wanted to speak at a higher level. So I started pursuing those those, uh, promotion opportunities for a lack of a better term. So I, I went and I wanted to be a director and I wanted to be an ops leader. And once I got to that point, I decided that this was where I wanted to shift my viewpoint from continuing to propagate what was already out there and shift into building something where I really wanted to push the the body of knowledge, especially around continuous improvement and business efficiency and optimization. So I'm hoping at this point, you have heard that I was totally a quantitative person. I was very in for the processes and the controls, which is fascinating since we're here to talk about lookism. So Because I wanted to push that body of knowledge, I decided to pursue a doctorate in business administration. And I had this really set idea that I was going to walk in and I was going to use the rolled throughput yield, which you guys know is one of our go-tos in Six Sigma as far as calculating the likelihood of defect in a process. And I was going to take that and apply some chaos and complexity theory ideas and come up with these recommendations for how we can decrease chaos in our organization. And in my mind, it was a really fully baked idea. So that's what I walked into my dissertation ready to do. Um, and as you know, here, it's a little bit different. So I ended up switching up my research topic. And I'm going to give it back to you, Bella, because I want to hear the shock factor when people hear what I ended up after you heard where I started from. <laughs> so first of all, I think that's such a fascinating story, and it's, and it's
0: very interesting because Um, you know, this is really what the, the edges of lean is about. It's about, you know, well, what is that expanded body of knowledge, right? We have in, in, in lean, lean six sigma, we have rules, we have tools, we have things that you do ways that you, you know, will move an organization forward, but we almost always run into that. Well, it's about the people and we find out, you know, that it's about, it's about change management, and it, and it's about influence, and it's about all sorts of things that we usually don't learn in our uh, green belt, our black belt, our you know our lean certification classes. We don't learn a lot about that stuff, and you bring what you have brought into it is a whole other level of of the difficulties of respect for people and really are driving to respect for people when we don't even know how influenced we are uh, by our biases about the way that somebody looks. Is that kind of that what, is, you, what that you found, is, right? That and exactly. that's, <laughs> so I need to, t- I need to tell my the listeners. So um, when Catherine and I got together to plan this podcast, she turns up with pink hair. Is it pink today? Do you have some pink streaks in there today? Yeah. So for those of you who are listening and not watching the video, um, she does have some pink streaks kind of in the back of of the hair. Mm -hmm. So Catherine, what happens when somebody with pink hair turns up to do a serious dissertation topic like like uh, the the uh, chaos. the chaos theory. <laughs>
1: yes. What happens? Does chaos happen then? <laughs> chaos does happen. So I told you I had this fully baked idea. I was certain that this was going to be that next iteration of Lean Six Sigma. So we we work on reducing defects. We work on reducing variation. So now we're, we're going to have a whole tool set that's going to reduce complexity and chaos in our organization. So I was. I was ready. Um so I ended up chatting with a couple of colleagues as far as what do I need to do to put together my proposal and what do I need to do to start my research on this and I need an advisor who knows about chaos and complexity theory. So um, and you were and you were expecting answers that were about the work, right? Yes, yes, I was. So, I was ready to, I was prepped to have these conversations and I was expecting this colleague um, to come back and say, yes, you know, that is absolutely brilliant. What do you think it could look like like this? Or have you thought about this? So I I came in prepped to answer every possible question. Um, and the question that I received, I was wholly unprepared for, which is how do you expect someone to take you seriously with pink hair? So for those of you who are not seeing me, and I've kept it out of the camera uh, for the sake of this, the video, I also have quite a few tattoos, but I usually hide them. Um, because I was having this conversation with a colleague, it didn't occur to me to minimize my creative expression. I, and I was I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe that I just did my whole rundown on how we're gonna decrease chaos in organizations and we're gonna change the way that businesses look at processes. And the only question I got was, how do you expect someone to take you seriously with pain care? And that was, it, it was mind blowing for me, but not in the good way where I was like, really? I just, I, this was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And that got me thinking. And, and I have never been someone in my career who has thought that my career path has been driven by my gender or my age. I've always been that the person who's like, no, no, it's on my merit alone. I'll just work very hard. And as I went through my research, I learned that it is not that easy. Um, but the, the question that I started asking myself after that was, how many other times in my career has my career trajectory changed because of the way that I look, not because of how brilliant or not brilliant I am, and those are the things I earn on my own, but purely because I show up with pink hair, or I show up with natural colored hair, depending on the organization. So that's, that's how I took this very hard right turn into looking at lookism. So what what did your dissertation end up being then? Yes. my So my dissertation, my final dissertation is about the impact of appearance on women's career progression. And I sliced up our careers um, in a couple of different ways. I looked at it from an early, a mid and a senior career level, but really when I looked at career progression, I didn't want to think about years in role. I wanted to think about roles and. responsibilities excuse me, roles and responsibilities. So when I take on an extra project or when I want to do a different task, does my appearance impact that? And I want to call out for our male listeners also that lookism impacts men as well. And I'm certainly- chat about that a little bit. I wanted to graduate. So I had to narrow my topic down into something that was dissertation size, not lifelong career size. So me focusing on women has nothing to do with excluding men. It really was, I'm a very efficient person. And I'm like, okay, how do I get from point A to point B as fast as possible? So.
0: <laughs> so what did, what, what are some of your big takeaways from your research?
1: Yeah, my, my first one was actually, was very surprising for me, So when I say lookism, I'm talking about a parent's discrimination. And I came into this research with this bias, I'll call it what it was, that lookism is all about attractive people get ahead. You know what, if you are pretty, you are going to be further along in life, or you're going to get the roles and responsibilities that you are looking for, because through the lens of career progression, and the first really stark awakening for me is lookism has nothing to do with attractiveness. And and it certainly does. I mean, we do know that there are very attractive individuals out there, but rather lookism is about conformance with social expectations. And when I sat back and I introspected on that, absolutely. When I think about what an accountant is supposed to look like. I have a very clear idea in my head. Mm-hmm. i think about the accountant. When I think about what a Lean Six Sigma person is supposed to look like, I'm going to assume that the people around me do not picture me when they they picture that perfect Lean Six Sigma person. So lookism is very much about social expectations. And yes, there is that piece of just biological uh, attractiveness. But even still, some of my research showed that people who we would consider to be classically attractive did not do as well in the STEM industries. And there was almost this kind of mental block that you can't be attractive and good at math or you can't be attractive and be a computer programmer, which to me was also shocking. I expected this to be an all or nothing, like attractive people win the world or you know, there is nothing there. And I didn't realize how much nuance there is in this very subversive form of discrimination.
0: Uh, You know, it's funny. I saw just on the attractiveness side, I I saw something very interesting a few weeks ago. I live in Pennsylvania. Uh, We recently had a primary uh, and there were many candidates running for the the Democratic um, uh, senatorial um, uh, pick. Um, And one of them somebody commented to me i'm voting for him because and i was waiting you know for some policy thing she said because he looks like a senator
1: that's exactly that is the best he looks
0: like a senator that's why i'm voting for him and i thought okay (laughs) but that's what you're talking about right she has in her mind what a senator looks like and this particular person who by the way lost the primary looked like a senator to her so yeah. that was where her vote went.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's a great, an absolutely great example for some of the other things that when I think about implications of my research, I'm not gonna speak for this candidate because I'm not familiar with them, but there is a possibility that looking like a senator isn't the only qualification you need to be good at that job. And because they lost the primary, I'm going to assume that the mass believed that there were other qualifications that were more important. And that, that ties into what we, when we think about what we can do about it, we have to step back. And then the first thing that I I want to call out when we think about looks like a senator, I'm going to use that the rest of this podcast, because that is the best example. Um, So we have this preconceived mindset that what is beautiful is good. So in your, in this example, when we think about what is a beautiful senator, what is what we want them to look like, we just automatically assume that they would be good at that job because it meets that conformity of this is what we're looking for. Um, And this is a very, very, very deep-seated bias that pops up in cultures around the world. Because one of the things that I did in my research was I tried to parse out, is this purely a Westernized culture phenomenon or is this something that is global? And up globally. Um, And that goes back to that conformity with uh, societal expectations. But so we have this idea that what is beautiful is good, which becomes very dangerous when we start thinking about competency type roles, which is what we want in all of our employees is we want people who are very good at what they do is because it creates this halo effect that if you are good at one thing, you must inherently be good at everything and we see this in celebrities all the time. I don't know how many celebrities I've seen who are brilliant actors but maybe they start a musical career and maybe they're not as talented of singers as they are actors and well that's a really superficial example you know another way that you could think about it in a very tangible example is um I told you that I'm a very quantitative person. I came from an analyst background. So that's where I started in my roots was I was, it was me in Excel. um, And I wasn't originally a very good public speaker, but I was a very good analyst. So the assumption was, is just because I came up with these analyses that I would be able to present them in a way that was meaningful for my audience. And that wasn't the case at all. Um, But there's that belief that what is that halo effect and that what is beautiful is good. I did beautiful analyses. So obviously I must be good at everything within the analyst purview. And that wasn't the case. And I have to tell you, I had some really bad presentations. I mean, really bad while I was still trying to figure out which skills I needed to strengthen in myself. So halo effect and what is beautiful is good come through and it starts to alter our beliefs about the people around us skills and competencies, which isn't necessarily a bad thing when we're thinking about how we can develop ourselves, but it is a bad thing when you're making assumptions based off of this superficial packaging for a lack of a better term <laughs> and and what you're talking about um
0: you know because we on this podcast we talk we talk about we talk a lot about racism and the impact of, of racism but what you're talking about um is 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 probably is is intersectional yes. with racism that somebody whose skin color or hair is different um or whose um, the way they speak is different doesn't look like a whatever you think it's going to be. Um, but it goes it goes beyond that to all of these kind of patterns we have on our head of this is what a an analyst looks like. This is what our Lean Six Sigma coach looks like. This is what the CEO should look like.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and, um, and then there's, there's another piece in there, Catherine, isn't there about this idea of professionalism and what does it mean to be professional?
1: Mm-hmm. And we
0: came by this, I have to say, you know, because I'm a bit older than you. (laughs) We came by this deliberately. When I was first starting my career, you know, there were books about how to dress for work what to wear, what, you know, how to cut your hair, you know, what was the right kind of makeup for women to wear, not too little, not too much, you know, just so that you could fit into some corporate mold, because a research had been done that showed, that showed if you look like this, people are more likely to listen to you, you're more likely, more likely to get promoted. And so that created, I think, certainly among those of us, and I don't want to, I don't want to say something bad about my whole generation but for many of us who are you know leading organizations now or you know in 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 management roles now this is actually what you're talking about is not just as an internal bias we were actually taught this we studied this (laughs) we chose to go down this path
1: yes and that's actually so that is a Yes, I'm just gonna emphatically say yes and tell you that it still exists to this day. some of the aspects of my research, I looked at corporate handbooks, and I looked at big four guidelines for professionalism, which, so professionalism in and of itself is an interesting topic, right? Because it is a combination of a couple of facets. It's how do you present yourself from a packaging perspective, and how do you present yourself as an authority on your topic? So I'll I'll pick on consulting right now because it has a very set dress code. We have corporate drag these are your navy and your black suits you have understated makeup you wear pearls or if you're a gentleman you wear a tie that matches your suit but also has a little bit of pizzazz just enough to catch the eye and that was and you don't wear kids you never wear kids you never wear kids you you even down to what color shoes you should wear based off of your belt I mean yeah you absolutely you never wear kids um and we saw and this is still very prevalent today you know the example that I give when I talk to people about societal expectations is is I'm okay tell me what a banker looks like because this is a very set finance has a very very strict unspoken dress code so does law as well have you ever seen a lawyer cruising in with a graphic tee making their argument I mean that sounds like the start of a great legal sitcom um but when we we think about so we have this packaging right If you see the army of consultants walking around your organization, you know that they're the army of consultants because they all look about the same, they all kind of walk the same way. And these are the things that we encourage. Um, And it's interesting when we start thinking about those highly innovative industries, because bucking this idea of professionalism, which is this conformity to what what a person should look like when they take their job seriously, really started coming out of our very high tech. So the industries that were started by people who value creativity, or maybe we're non-traditional executives. So we think about like Zuckerberg and the PayPal gentleman. Um, those, these are these are people who didn't get raised, for lack of a better term, in this kind of sort of corporate, corporate, I call it corporate drag environment where you have these expectations that you look this way. So we started seeing that people could be very brilliant at their job with tattoos and funky hair and nose piercings. And, and interestingly aside, um, my research showed that there's almost a swing towards a bias for that type of appearance in the startup culture. So back to that societal expectation. But when we think about so we're get, coming back to professionalism. So professionalism is this twofold, how you look and how you present yourself. And you do it to verif- to inspire confidence that you are an expert in your topic. So we, we create this idea of what an expert would look like. I pick on consulting because I have a closet full of navy blue and black suits. So I can speak very... Uh, authoritatively on that topic. But so now you have this idea that this is the only type of person that can provide feedback. And this is where the most important finding from my research comes in. So. You have this idea of professionalism and one of where how Bella and I met was I went out to LinkedIn and I was challenging is professionalism really a manifestation of who I am as a professional, or is it a manifestation of obedience or conformance with expectations because does how what I wear change how good I am at my job and I will say certainly there are roles where your appearance becomes a very important factor. I'm thinking modeling um, or acting. I am definitely not thinking marketing or Lean Six Sigma or those sorts of things. Um, But so we, we have this idea of what a professional looks like. And this links back to the racism and the ageism and the sexism piece, and why I will argue that lookism is one of the most pervasive, because we as employees create a relationship with our employer or our boss, if you wanna manifest that way. And in creating that relationship, we receive rewards and benefits, jobs, titles, roles and responsibilities, when we comply with what our organization is looking for. So now we push that to when we comply with what our organization thinks looks like a professional. And it creates this very dyadic workplace that you, Bella, were describing. So if I want to excel in this organization, I look this way. So I change to look that way, but I'm already good at my job. And now, as much as
0: as much as you can, right, because right. not everybody can fit into the mold. Absolutely, right.
1: Absolutely. Um, but I'm also already good at my job. So then it sends this message to my employer that people who wear navy and black suits are better at this job. And we create that halo effect that creates this ongoing feedback loop and where it comes into when we start thinking about the really major isms like racism is it then creates segregation within an already marginalized group. So if we, we say right out front that there are marginalized groups that have disadvantages and barriers that other groups do not have, now within that, we're creating competition. Who's the most professional? Who fits the mold? If I'm going to hire somebody of a minority descent, am I going to hire somebody of a minority descent that fits in with my company or that doesn't fit in with my company? And that's where it starts getting very dangerous because we don't have any checks and balances for this. There is no uh, legislation to protect people. I mean, and, and there's certainly legislation to protect natural hair color, but there's no legislation to protect funky hair color or wearing bright patterns to your interview at a consulting firm. It doesn't change what your contributions to that firm will be, but it certainly changes that perspective of whether or not I will or will not fit in with that firm.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. So oh, that's that's really interesting because because uh, that that definitely happens, right? So so if for people of color, if there is a pattern for a particular organization or a particular role, mm-hmm. then you would see you would see potentially, sort of almost unconsciously, this stratification. Somebody who is closer to the ideal, perhaps in body shape or yeah. the clothes they choose to wear, or their ability to get their head to Look, quote unquote professional, which is uh, you know a horrible way to talk about hair, they may have an an edge on somebody who can or won't do those things.
1: That's exactly it. And that links all the way back to your observations about being taught to the way that I think about it is is gaming the system. Some of the things that I looked at was I was trying to figure out where does this idea of professionalism, or more specifically, where does this idea that appearance impacts competency starts and one of the things that I identified was it really starts when we start having these professional conversations so at the college and university level and something that was so powerful for me is is I interviewed a couple of career coaches and I asked them tell me how do you prep people for interviews and one of the very first things they talked about was how you present yourself how you style your hair, how you choose the outfits that you choose. And they talked about doing homework on the corporate culture. Like, I want you to go to LinkedIn and look at the pictures of the people who look who work there and see what they look like. And you're going to want to try and emulate that as much as possible to game the system, to convince the organizations that you are, in fact, a good fit and that you have contributions beyond that packaging that you wear. and for me that was really shocking. I mean certainly I understand the idea of corporate brand and I understand um, wanting to make sure that you have an alignment with your organization's mission and vision but I don't understand wanting to hire somebody who looks or thinks or talks like you because really all that's doing is is creating this very myopic view and You and I both know when you're being innovative and creative, you want those out of the box ideas. You want those people who are completely not like you to challenge the way that you're thinking about running your business or the direction that you need to go or the products that you offer or who your customers are, how to meet them. All of these things are things that you need diversity of thought from and how we present ourselves is a reflection of the diversity of thought and what we value.
0: Wow. So it's still going on today. People are are still being told, you know, if you, if you want that job with, with one of the big four, you know, there, these are the three tie colors you should pick out and um, have, have, have those ready for your, for your three levels of interviews or, you know, whatever, whatever it's going to be. Wow. Or if you, you really want that job at Facebook. Yeah.
1: Get a hoodie. That's, That's exactly, that is exactly it. If you want that job at Facebook, Potentially, you're going to want to wear the greatest graphic t-shirt you own. Under a blazer and a funky pattern, because you want to tell Facebook or whomever—I I won't necessarily pick on Facebook—but you want to tell this prospective employer that you are creative and that you are willing to buck social norms and that you believe in, you know, self manifestation. And and that goes back to it. Really started in the startup world where we started to see, okay, what is that segre? What does that segregation look like? Um, but yeah, if you want, if you show it up to say a big four where. I love patterns. For those of you who can't see me, uh, I wear bright colors and patterns and I clash, and I will probably end up on what not to wear one day, um, but not in a complimentary way. But if you show up wearing my favorite blazer, which is very loud, um, to a, a big four, you might get an eyebrow raise. And I doubt that anybody would be direct enough to say Hey! Wow, that is so not the way that we go here. But if I think about the coaching that I or the conversations that I had with the the um, career coaches, those are the types of messages that they gave. Is is if you want, if you're going to move into a creative position, ladies can wear dresses and blouses and big jewelry. If you want to go into a finance position, you should really be understated and air towards conservative. And this comes back to that doesn't change your ability to do the role certainly doesn't change your ability to be a high functioning contributing employee but it does change your ability to get in the door and that would be what i would challenge managers to think about is what exactly do does your employee need to be successful in this role
0: Right. And, and I would say it's beyond getting in the door, right? It, because because Absolutely. in order to, if you want to advance or you want to move laterally in the, in, in the company, you're going to have to be in front of people and you, you may have to make presentations and you may have to you know, go to events. Well, you will, and you're going to have to mix with other people. And every single person who sees you is going to be consciously or unconsciously looking and say, this person doesn't look like or does look like a whatever the role is that you're you're aspiring for right and well, I this just from Catherine this just reminded me of something speaking of consultants so years ago when I worked for a consulting company um we had a Christmas party and the um uh what the president's wife who didn't spend a lot of time um you know kind of in the company came to the Christmas party and I'm wearing a party dress and I'm out on the floor dancing and um the uh chief operations officer pointed me out to the president's wife and said that's our top billing consultant and she said to him he told me afterwards that doesn't look like a top billing consultant
1: yes but I was (laughs) yes that is exactly that that is exactly what we're talking about and I, or what I'm talking about is is you having fun on a dance floor and wearing something that makes you feel empowered. And I want you to know that I say empowered instead of pretty because when I, I come to challenge or or uh, individuals how we can start changing this, um, the way that we pay compliments is my my first advice. So you wearing something that makes you feel empowered and confident doesn't change how your interaction. I mean. Arguably, I, I will I will take that back. Arguably, if you feel confident in what you're wearing, that will manifest in the way that you interact with your customers and clients. But fundamentally, the color dress you're wearing doesn't change your knowledge base. It doesn't change your perspectives. It doesn't change your ability to think critically or make powerful decisions. It really just changes what color you're wearing that day. And And we put so much weight on the packaging and the choices that people make when they pull that shirt out of the closet in the morning. Um, But yeah. So I'm going, I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a minute because I know I'm already jumping your script. I know that we're going to talk about what we can do about it. And the first thing that I want to challenge. I have to talk about that, Catherine. It's time to talk about it. It's Okay, perfect. Um, I want to challenge all of us as individuals. And then I have some recommendations for managers and team members as well, but as individuals, anybody listening to this podcast the next time you go to pay one of your colleagues, or if you want to be big, anybody in your in your network or in your world, a compliment, I want you to think about the words that you use. So especially with women, the compliments that you pay are, you look so pretty today, or you look beautiful, or you look nice. Um, and, and all of this comes back to how you look. It's not, you're so smart, or you did such a great job on this presentation, or you know, you really, you really embodied who you were. I'm gonna think about you in your party dress for that. But it really comes back to when we compliment people, we tend to go straight to their appearance, especially when we're complimenting women and other women, um, which comes all the way back to this: what is beautiful is good. When I say you look really nice today, Bella. I'm there's so well, thank you. Yes, yes, <laughs> you do. Yes. Um, but there's so much more that we that goes into that. And, and we should say that, like, Bella, I think that you are doing a fantastic job putting a podcast out there talking about the tough subjects. That is a much deeper compliment than you look very nice. Again, not that you don't, but it really gets to the core of what you're doing and what your contribution is, because your contribution is more than looking nice. Your contribution is so deep and so vast and rich. And that's that's what I think that we should all start thinking about when we come to work and we tell our coworkers, that they're having a great day, give them something specific that relates to something that they can control because so often our appearance is related to our genetics or our background or upbringing, but really give them, I pick on presentations because i was such a terrible presenter for so long. You did a really great job on that presentation is much better than you look good in another Navy suit. And and then you could even add to that. You did,
0: you did such a good job in that presentation and I really got the points you were trying to make. And here's what they were, because now you're telling the person I listened and yes. you communicated well, which is what the presentation's about. Yes. But, yeah. but I'm, I'm kind of torn about this, Catherine, because I so many times as um, a, a mentor to women, a woman who like is preparing to do something will say, well, what should I wear? you know, yes. how do I, you know, uh, uh, you know, here's my outfit, you know, here's what I'm going on on the stage in five minutes, and how do I look, right, yes. so, so people want that feedback. back, they want that, that, I've got to say, guys never asked me that, but when a woman have said, women have said, do I look okay,
1: yes, you know, ask me that, so I will say it is absolutely both genders, and that's exactly, Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think that we should withhold all of this because we would be basically talking about eroding an entire social custom to say, nope, I'm not going to make comments on appearance. And certainly when we think about, we've talked about so much of what we do is viewed through this lens of our appearance. Presentations is a great way. How do I look? what should i wear and this this gets to the core of my unsolved problem so i have lots of recommendations for ways that we can manage this but at the end of the day the question that i was left with is do we play the game so do we continue to conform with professionalism do we recognize that maybe we're going to make some very subtle shifts maybe Tattoos are going to be visible, maybe we're not going to raise an eyebrow when somebody puts that streak of pink in their hair, Um, or do we say, this is not the way we're going to be I'm going to present as myself and the world around me can get used to it, because I mean both of these are both of these choices have ramifications and have implications. If you play the game, that's what we're going to call, then there is that possibility for a sense of inauthenticity or disingenuousness with who I am as a person. I mean, I think about, I started calling my suits corporate drag because it didn't feel like me. But on the flip side, if I come in, Guns blazing. Uh, If I come in with my pink hair and my tattoos and my funky jewelry, there is a possibility that one of my clients or one of my executives who comes from a different background might find that off-putting and might find that that erodes my position. And I wish that I had a great answer, um, but I'm going to tell the people listening out here to track me down and tell me your thoughts so that we can collectively come to a great answer. but yeah, that's that, That's the million dollar question. Do you continue knowing that this is continuing to propagate that lens or do you buck the system and risk not being able to participate in that conversation? So my answer to and you- that's, yeah, go ahead. My, my answer to you is reassure your colleagues that they look great and that they're going to do great. And that they're going to do great. I think that's, that's, yes, you're
0: going to do great. And because that's, that's what you need. You really need to hear. And so I'm thinking about the manager now. So the manager, uh, we talk about managers a lot. Managers are in this position, like where, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to enact the things that are coming down from on high. And some of those are visible and some of those are invisible known things and things that everybody knows. Right. and, and they're they're trying to support their employees and, and a, a, a lean or a lean six segment leader, especially, is wanting to develop those employees and help them reach really reach their full potential, right? So is it important for those for those managers to start by becoming aware of what their own lookers and biases yeah. might be? Uh, and what are the things that they've been told in their life that they've it. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. The very first step is starting to question when you are interacting with somebody, do I view them this way because of skills um, or history? We want to start thinking about how they came here, what were their experiences, or do I view them this way because of some preconceived notion. And it's the same type of check that you, we have to give ourselves when we think about those biggies, when we think about, think racism, about racism and ageism and, ageism and sexism, is, sexism is, are we treating this person differently because they're a male or a female, or are we treating them differently based off of the collection of knowledge and experiences that we have in front of us? And, and that's challenging and it's hard and it's a minute by minute uh, type of interaction. And for me, I, for, for me, I, because Lean Six Sigma, I have this very, very uh, deep bias towards actionable information. So for me, when I was thinking- Data, right? You want data. I want, I want data. And I want, in this case, this is going to make everybody's skin crawl. So come with me for this, for hiring and roles and responsibilities and promotion. I want us to remove the appearance data. I want us to say this is not a factor and to sort out that noise, which I recognize can be challenging. And going back to your top build consultant uh, situation, um, um, you, you will know, hear pushback that, well, she's top build because she fits the mold. And we are saying in this very large picture that not only does she have the skills and competencies that we need, but also she models the professionalism that we're looking for. So when she fits the mold, and that's going to be one of that first pieces of pushback, which is why I want managers to really think about what do you need to be successful in whatever task is in front of you? Like if you were thinking about project management is somebody who will I'll be, does somebody who looks like me have a different level of attention to detail than somebody who maybe wears khakis and and polo shirts or, you know, white button down blouses or something that is very, very conservative and unassuming in their, in their presentation. So that's the first thing is, is I want managers to distill out what do you really need to be successful in this task and to think about it in that lens. And this is where my my analyst background came through very strongly in my research when I started thinking about, okay, how do me, how can we as managers, because you called it, managers are in a very difficult situation because we have this overarching organization who says that we have brands and we have professionalism and this is how we're going to present ourselves to the world. And then the managers are responsible for being the agents of that. They they continue and they propagate that. And that's what we do when we ask them to be managers. And then you have employees who know who they are and who these roles and responsibilities so my my first challenge to managers is to not dehumanize your people but to step back and really think about skills and competencies and start thinking about growth opportunities rather than putting it through that halo effect So we'll, we'll pick on me and my presentation. I was very, very lucky in my early 20s that I was terrible, terrible public speaker, but an excellent analyst because I had a boss who recognized that if I wanted to go to the place that I wanted to be, I needed to be better at communicating. I couldn't just write reports and do spreadsheets. I really had to be able to articulate what this means and tell that story. So this boss was able to step back from my very geeky, very introverted self and say, okay, here's what we can do to help you. I'm going to send you to acting classes. I wish I was kidding, this is so true. Um, You're gonna learn how to project your voice. You're gonna learn how to have cadence when you speak and you're not gonna be monotone. Um, and, And those are the sorts of things that this was my all time favorite boss, but these are the sorts of things that if we think about what do you need to be truly successful? I didn't need to wear a Navy suit. I needed to be able to tell a story in a way that was engaging and pulling back, this is presentation skills, not presentation. And that those are the types of examples that I challenge our managers to think about. So sales is a role, sales and marketing are roles that get a lot of pushback on appearance, that you have to look like a salesperson and the marketers have to present the brand. And, and, and I don't know that that's Accurate. I, I don't know that when you are working with sales, you are looking at solutions and you are identifying your clients' problems and opportunities in ways that you as a as an vendor will just loosely say as another company can meet those problems and opportunities. Certainly, there is something in that initial conversation that says, you know, this gentleman gives off, you know, Clark Gable air, we should want to work with him, but as you are developing that relationship and having those conversations, I think that anybody can identify a problem or an opportunity and can certainly think critically about what is this and what can we do to fix that. I mean, that's one of the basic premises of Lean Six Sigma is that our employees, their engagement is what drives successful programs. And I think that we need to think about um, how we are engaging those employees and not handpicking the ones that look like the way that we think that they should look. My um my last recommendation for yeah. managers is because this is so pervasive, and we talked about that relationship between the corporation or the organization and the employee, and how if they want me to look like I'm going to do it, and it creates this feedback loop. My recommendation would be to think about things that increase your employee's exposure. So, uh, career pathing. You know, you do this, based off of these skills and competencies, you move into this role and really step back and take out some of those unconscious pieces. And the other part is rotation throughout departments, because what I consider to be professional, I imagine is very different than what you consider to be professional, Bella. So when I'm looking at the employee as an entity and a person within my organization, I wanna get a lot of different viewpoints. So it's not just me saying they're not professional because they wear their KEDS under their suit pants, but me saying, okay, they're not professional because maybe they don't show up to work on time or I'm gonna believe that they're very professional and the KEDS has no impact whatsoever on what they contribute to our organization and to our our larger community. But it really is going to have to start, right, Catherine, with
0: reflection on right. what are my biases? Where am I actually looking at someone saying they don't look like a yes. whatever it is, right? They don't look like an accountant. They don't look like a CEO. They don't look like what, whatever it is and thereby expecting, um, um, you know, them yes. not to do well, or perhaps no, even you know, giving them the opportunity and not listening to them. So, so like a lot of things in continuous improvement, that self-reflection is really, really important. I want to, and I want to thank you for like for really bringing that to our attention because as leaders, wherever it is we lead, whether we're leading, you know, right from the 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 gemba, right from where work is happening, whether we're leading at the top of an organization. We ha- we bring these biases in with us, and maybe we learn them uh, consciously, or maybe we learn them unconsciously. But we we still they're still going to impact how we perceive people, and how we perceive people is going to impact our ability to to help them become the best people they can be.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Catherine. Tell us how, you want people to engage in this conversation with you to to help you answer the big question, do we play the game or do we not play the game, right? How
1: are they gonna do that? What's the best way to find you? My my preference would be that you guys connect and follow me on LinkedIn. And the reason why is because anytime I come across something of interest, I wanna put it out there and I wanna start that conversation. And if you see uh, something that I post and it doesn't resonate for you, speak up. If it does resonate for you, speak up because the more that we have these conversations in these large platforms, the more that we're gonna raise that awareness and come back to that introspection that Bella was talking about. So my LinkedIn is uh, Dr. Katherine D. McIver. You can find me because I have a very professional picture um, (laughs) that that, shows that I in fact do recognize that people look at my pictures on LinkedIn. But um, if you want to, my LinkedIn, uh, blah, excuse me, my LinkedIn address is backslash Katherine D McIver, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, D as in dog, M-C-I-V-E-R. And the D is very important because if you don't put the D in there, you get my cousin in Australia who does not talk about this at all. <laughs> no, I'm sure they're a great person. They absolutely, absolutely are. But she, she is not going to post things on Lookism. <laughs> There you go. Catherine McIver, what is your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? Yeah, you know, my the piece of advice that I wish somebody had told me really early on is it is okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have a bad week or a bad month or even a bad year that we don't always have to always be on. And that doesn't erode who we are or what our contributions are. And I certainly think coming out of the pandemic, everybody will resonate with this idea that it's okay to have a bad year. Um, But it really is. And to give yourself that kind of grace to recognize, maybe this isn't my week or my month. (laughs) I
0: love that. I love that advice, because I think there's a lot of kind of forced optimism out there right now. You've got to be positive all the time. So yeah, it's okay to have a bad day or a bad week. Yeah. Yeah, but well, this has been a good conversation, Catherine. So, so this is uh, this is a good day for you. So, yes. you're, you're having a good day.
1: Thank you so much. And again, Bella, thank you for the invitation. I am so glad to get the opportunity to discuss this and to continue raising awareness to lookism and how it impacts us in our workforce and certainly in our lives.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for coming, and everybody, uh, follow Catherine D. McIver, Dr. Catherine D. McIver, on LinkedIn and continue the conversation. Thank you. This is Bella Engelbach and I'd like to thank Catherine McIver for being my guest on the Edges of Lean. What are your thoughts and insights about lookism? How has it affected you? We'd love to hear from you. You can email Catherine at at catherineatthecomplexmanager.com, Catherine with a Y, or find her on LinkedIn where she's Catherine D McIver. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen and tell a friend about the edges of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Ages of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.